0: Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, and I'm joined by my co hosts, Avi Cooper and Hannah Abrams. Avi, how you doing? Good. I'm shaking with excitement here. <laughs> Hannah,
1: how about you? Doing <laughs> fantastic.
0: <laughs> well, Avi's already given it all away. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the shakes today. More specifically, Hannah's going to walk us through a question that builds on actually some of our prior episodes where we talked about the physiology of fevers, why we get shakes and rigors in the setting of an infection. And the more specific question she's going to aim to answer is why this odd drug, Meperidine, can treat rigors. What a weird association.
1: Yeah. So um, one of the privileges of being a senior resident is that you you kind of get called when there's something going wrong. And occasionally, I have found that there is this one kind of old school medication that in the appropriate and right situation has the power, and just that very specific situation, I'll say, has the power to make a shaking, hypertensive, desatting patient who is in the middle of a whole bunch of rigors suddenly feel better and stabilize out. And that medication is meparidine, which I will admit that before residency, I really actually only ever heard of used as a treatment for Rigers. And before residency, I had only really heard of in the context of a really important case in medical legal history, that of Libby Zion. So I was surprised to learn, actually, when I started looking at the question of why does this medication work for Rigers and why don't we use it for anything else, that Mepiridine is actually an opioid analgesic. And then I wanted to know, why would an opioid stop rigors? And why don't we use other opioids for the same thing? Have you guys seen this?
0: Yeah, I feel like this is a, an episode where our PACU listeners are like, yes, finally. Because you know, I don't hang out in the PACU very often, This, but that's a place where I see this used post-operative riders, post-op shaking. And I have some patients who get amphotericin B, and I've seen it in that situation too. It's a, it is this very odd niche now. Avi, do you see it in the MICU?
2: Not really. I could probably count on less than one hand the times that I've used miperidine. But I mean, I, we do use other opiates uh, to help with shivering in the setting of like patients on like targeted temperature management and sort of cooling after cardiac arrest. I've never specifically used meperidine in that situation though.
0: And I also feel like this is a drug that when I was a resident, I feel like I saw it on medication allergy lists all the time. And I just don't see it nearly as often. I think it was a very popular drug a few decades ago as an opiate analgesic. And now again, it's very very, very rarely used for that indication anymore.
2: So Hannah, how did this medication end up with you know this sort of this place in medical history and and something that you know physicians have used for a long time to treat rigors how, how did we end up here
1: yeah so first i'm going to start by telling you a little bit of the history of the drug itself which is quite interesting so meperidine was actually the first synthetic opioid it was developed in 1939 by chemists in germany and then rose to prominence in the 1940s internationally as an alternative pain medication and anesthetic to morphine. So a paper from 1943 described, the increased need for morphine in time of war and the present threat to our opium supply make it important that appropriate consideration be given to the new analgesic meparidine, for this compound can be prepared synthetically from available chemicals. So beyond this kind of like geopolitical significance, meparidine also early on was noted to have some key differences from morphine. It had more of an antispasmodic effect. It was thought to be quicker on and off. And it was originally thought actually to be less likely to cause dependence, though later that was disproven, which was one of the reasons that it's fallen out of favor.
2: Okay. So it sounds like it sort of arose as as a synthetic opioid in the 1940s as a response to sort of a need to have more opiates available during a time of war. But before we go any further do we know that it actually works for shivering sort yeah. of beyond the anecdotal experience?
0: Beyond our it's not <laughs> enough that we're just saying that it works.
1: Our combined n of 10 experience <laughs> administering <laughs> this medication. <laughs> in the very niche subset of situations in which it is indicated. Um, Yeah, we actually do. So um, when it was a slightly more popular medication and when this question of what anti-shivering medications work best – particularly for post-anesthesia shivering and amphotericin B. There was a meta-analysis of 94 studies of anti-shivering medication randomized control trials. They covered 30 drug or drug combinations. And across 16 randomized controlled trials, the had a risk ratio of 2.2 for likelihood to prevent or treat shivering. So one would be insignificant. And to compare to fentanyl, fentanyl had a risk ratio of 1.2 it won across this group of 30 drug and drug combinations.
0: I find it quite remarkable that we've done nearly 100 trials of anti-shivering medications, that randomized control trials. That's that's really quite impressive. Um, And it seems like, at least from this data, and I suspect a lot of this data is older, there was kind of something different about meparidine that worked that, I don't know, maybe it provides a little bit of an insight as to the answer to the ultimate question. But can you start talking a little bit about that? Like, can you start describing a little bit about how meperidine is different than, say, something like garden variety morphine?
1: Yeah, and I'll say not only were there 94 studies included in the meta-analysis, I think there were like 120 studies that they actually found, and they found 94 to be high quality enough to include. So <laughs> it's actually, and this is a, yes, you're right, Tony. This is like an older meta-analysis, so there have been some studies after. So it's a question that has been investigated, I think, a lot more than we in general medicine often think about treating. So going back to what do we know about meperidine, and how is it different from morphine or other opioids? that would help us understand why it works like this. So we're gonna go back a little bit to talking about the mechanisms of how we sense pain on the podcast. So we've talked about the types of nerves that carry different types of pains with bone pain. We've talked about the receptors and the G-protein coupled receptors with why UTIs cause burning. Today, we're actually gonna talk about the categories of opioid receptors. So there are four big categories of opioid receptors. Mu, delta, kappa, and opioid receptor-like one, ORL1. Uh, And they each carry some similarities in terms of what intracellular signaling pathways they activate and some that are unique. So they have some effects that are similar and some that are unique. Mu opioid receptors are what we kind of classically think about when we talk about opioid agonism. So mu opioid receptor is key for alleviating pain, can cause euphoria, can increase mood, and it's probably the best understood and studied of the receptors. The main opioid receptor that we're gonna talk about other than mu today is kappa. So kappa is not as well understood as mu in terms of its effect but it does have some effect as an antispasmodic. So it's actually some kappa opioid receptor agonists are being used uh, for IBS, which and it also sort of aligns with some of the older school uses of meparidine. Interestingly, it functions the opposite of mu opioid receptors in causing itching. So mu opioid receptors cause itching like morphine causes itching, and kappa opioid receptors suppress itching. And while meparidine is was originally thought of as a mu receptor opioid. It also has moderate affinity for kappa and delta opioid receptors, whereas the other opioids that we use more typically in clinical practice, like fentanyl and morphine, are much more purely
0: mu. So it sounds like meperidine is. I don't know, I, I'll just use the word a little messier. It's not purely mu. It's it's got a little bit of this kappa activity, which differs from other synthetic and non-synthetic opioids. So does this provide some insight into its mechanism of sort of treating shivers, treating riggers?
1: Happy to answer that question. But first, let's take a break to hear from our sponsor for this episode.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: When clinicians are at their best, working in medicine can be one of the most miraculous and humbling experiences. But some days, it is definitely easy to get overwhelmed or feel like you are not showing up in the way that you are hoping to. Working with a therapist can help you manage the challenges and get closer to the version of yourself that you want to be.
0: And this is true for students all the way through the most seasoned clinicians. At any level, therapy can teach positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself.
2: And therapy isn't just for those who are struggling. Anyone can benefit. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option.
1: It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and it is entirely online. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no
0: additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com clinicians today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash clinicians. And now, back to the episode.
1: It does. Hopefully. Shocking. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing <laughs> that the narrative lays out like that. Um, so I will say, we don't know with certainty. We, we know that probably the kappa receptor is a big component of this, and we don't know with 100% certainty why the kappa receptor works like this, because this research has a little bit been abandoned as meparidine as a clinically used drug has been abandoned. So there's a couple hypotheses out there, and they are overall, I would say, less studied. But there's two big thoughts that I think we should talk about on the podcast today. The first is the idea that the kappa opioid receptors cause decreased muscle spasms. So we talked about just a minute ago how the kappa opioid receptor acts a little bit more as an antispasmodic. And that was even noted in 1943. And they used it in urologic surgeries. They used it in childbirth. They originally used it for people with pancreatitis who had sphincter of OD dysfunction. And so the idea is with this first theory that diminished muscle responsiveness is almost like a muscle relaxant effect the muscle might be less excitable by a stimulus that says to the brain, from the brain, you're cold, it's time to shiver. And so you're less likely to shiver, just like we learned about in your episode on Reiger's, and you're less likely to actually clinically manifest with Reiger's. This is the idea, there's some good strong research that shows that meperidine decreases the shiver threshold in humans. So that's theory number one, which is that Mepiridine, by being a kappa opioid agonist, decreases the muscle reactivity and the shiver threshold. The second idea is that kappa opioid receptor might affect somehow how we sense temperature. So Tony taught us in episode 21, if there's some kind of stimulus for rigoring or shivering, it starts that your hypothalamus changes its set point. Whatever temperature you're sensing in the core of the body Then is sensed in the dorsal horn nuclei, the spinal cord returns to the thalamus, which then tells the cortex, like, go find somewhere warm, and the hypothalamus, which controls all of these vasoconstriction, adipose thermogenesis, shivering. So it's possible that there's some component of the kappa opioid receptor that affects how people actually sense cold. So unclear, and we don't have fully the research to say, but the two biggest theories I would say are that either we're decreasing the shiver threshold or we are making the sensation of temperature less we're we're sensing less cold
0: it's kind of remarkable that this receptor and sort of antagonism of it or sorry agonism of it would do so many different things but do we know that? Is there any kind of data offering that this kappa component is really at play here?
1: Yeah, and I mentioned that there's a delta agonism component of meparidine 2, which as just as we mentioned, it's kind of a messy drug, right? We know that it affects right, a lot yeah. of receptors. There's a couple interesting experiments that have shed light on this that do a good job of pointing to kappa. The first is a really interesting one, which was done in humans, so respect for doing such an interesting physiologic <laughs> study in humans. And the researchers answered the question, if we block kappa, can we block the effect of meperidine on shivering? So if we block the kappa opioid receptor, can we make meperidine not work anymore? And so it used the fact at low doses, naloxone blocks just mu receptors, and at high doses, it blocks both mu and kappa. And so they gave these poor volunteers, who I hope were compensated well, an infusion of cold saline to make them shiver. And then they either gave them a, an infusion of high or low dose naloxone. So the people who got high dose naloxone were the people for whom both kappa and mu activity was blocked. And they had an overall very minimal improvement in their shivering once they got paradine, Whereas the people who got the lower dose of naloxone, so just mu was blocked, saw the full effect of the meparidine dose. The second study uh, was a study in rats, which answered the opposite question. And so they used more like lab-based, in fact, intrathecal injections of very specific antagonists of K of the kappa receptor and the mu antagonist. And so they said, does a high-dose antagonist of kappa or mu cause hyperthermia? And they did this in rats. Mm. And so they found that rats who got the kappa antagonist, so blocking kappa, became hyperthermic. And mice who got the mu antagonist became hypothermic. Rats who got both stuck around the same temperature. And so this kind of suggests that kappa has some effect on cooling, maybe on temperature sensation. I'll say they didn't observe the rat's activity or exactly how the fever was generated. But it also suggests that the kappa and the mu receptors may balance each other, given that when they got both, both sets of antagonists actually stuck around the same temperature. And so this comes back to meparidine because meparidine has a different balance of kappa and mu relative to fentanyl or morphine or all of these other opioids that we use.
2: So it sounds like two really sort of complementary and fairly convincing studies suggesting that the kappa receptor is sort of perhaps the main way that meparidine is having this therapeutic effect. But it can't be the only drug out there that has effects on the kappa opioid receptor. So, do other drugs that also affect the kappa op- opioid receptor and signal that way also stop shivering?
0: Even yeah, I mean, if there were 96 randomized clinical trials, there's got to be some other drug in those <laughs> Yeah, that clonidine, does a bit of kappa. <laughs>
1: clonidine got wrecked in these trials, let me tell you. <laughs> Poor
0: clonidine.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, we'll link in the show notes to the full paper, which I think is really great. So yes, but luckily we don't use very many kappa opioid-specific agonists in clinical practice. So there's a medication called butorphanol, uh, which I had never heard of before this, which is a a kappa opioid receptor, which I think was like longer ago used in humans, uh, which does also work better for shivering than mu-predominant opioids. This has been shown with some sort of, again, like lab-based compounds in animals.
2: Interesting. And You know, thinking also about some of the sort of more messy sort of off-target effects that miperidine can have, what about medications that sort of um, affect the uh, serotonergic axis as well?
1: Yeah. So, and it's hard to tease out because the medication is messy and the trials and the studies that we have aren't always as specific to which opioid receptor we're looking at. So, for example, naloxone, I don't know what it does to the Delta opioid receptor. But it is true. So this big meta-analysis I was referring to before didn't really see a big effect with anti-serotonergic medications, which I think rose to prominence a little bit after this review was done. However, a later meta-analysis of, I think, 16 studies of anti-serotonergic medications like ondansetron did show that they do have an effect. And interestingly, when you talk about a quote-unquote messy opioid agonist. Tramadol is one that I think many of us think of and many of us try and avoid because it has so many effects in clinical practice. But it also comes out really strongly in that very large meta-analysis. So that supports the idea that there might be some receptor components of, of meparidine's effect that we are not seeing in these original studies.
0: We talked back in the episode on fever that there's an evolutionary biological reason why we're having fever. Now, in the sort of settings that we're often using it in hospital now, again, after amphotericin B or post-op shivering, I don't know that there is a good physiologic effect, but are there other sort of thermoregulatory things that are basically negatively affected by myperidine that we should be aware of if we consider using it?
1: Yeah, and I'll say, uh, as we've said a couple of times, the uses at this point are really limited to shivering or shaking that we think is not physiologic and not beneficial. So obviously, to to your question, Tony, blocking shivering is going to block you from mounting a temperature right away. Uh, One study in 1997 wanted to look at this specific question that you're asking is how exactly is it affecting thermoregulation? So they gave healthy volunteers meparidine and placebo and then put them into hot and cold rooms. Again, I hope that these volunteers were well-paid. They measured a variety of vital signs, including oxygen consumption from shivering. They found at the higher doses of meparidine, the shivering threshold was much decreased. So it went down from when they started to shiver around like 35.5 degrees Celsius in the control group to they actually went down to 32 degrees Celsius to shiver at the highest meparidine doses. And it was dose-dependent. So As you had more meparidine on board, it had to get colder for you to shiver. Interestingly, that was the effect on shivering, but not really the effect on vasoconstriction. So the patients in that higher group still had vasoconstriction at 35 degrees, and the amount of lowering of vasoconstriction was much less. This is different than most other opioids, which have more of a symmetric effect. So your shivering threshold and your vasoconstriction threshold are going to go down pretty similarly. It's an interesting physiologic study that also shows that there's potentially something specifically about the muscle effect in the shivering piece.
0: And I suspect these volunteers still felt cold. That's a great question, and I don't know if it was in the study. Yeah, I don't know. You'd imagine so, but yeah, I don't know. We'll have to go back and read Kurtz 1997. (laughs)
1: Exactly. I'm looking at it now. I don't think the treatment protocol included like a patient-reported outcome survey of uh, their personal feeling of coldness, which honestly would have provided really good data. Um, But I don't think that they included it.
2: Well, that's super interesting discussion, Hannah. Do you have anything else to add before we wrap up?
1: I did want to just include a brief explanation of the Libby Zion case, uh, which I think is probably the way that most people or many people know of this medication, and is a really sort of tragic case that will always probably be connected to this drug and also is the birth of resident duty hour restrictions which is something that affects many of us so the brief story is that libby zion was a freshman in college who had been admitted to a hospital in new york city which with what was described as a flu-like illness and she was admitted by two resident physicians an intern and a pgy2 who were taking care of dozens of other patients on a 36-hour call shift and she was treated during that shift with myperidine, which fatally interacted with a Maui that she was taking as an outpatient medication, phenylzine. And she ultimately died of an interaction between those two medications, which was described as a serotonin-like syndrome and had been seen between those two medications. The case really changed the public perception of the drug in addition to sort of some of the other negative effects that were found about its drug dependency and some of its other interactions. But some of that was part of why it came out of common use for indications other than amphotericin B and anesthesia-induced shivering. It's a really important case and it's really important to know that these two drugs have that interaction. I wonder if actually Tony if that's why you saw so many people with allergies if they had if it was like listed as an interaction if they had been on phenylzine.
0: It's a, it's a good question, I don't know, but it's possible.
2: Yeah, it's such a tragic case in it, but it also really highlights the need to be really thoughtful when you're choosing medications, you know, and taking care of sick patients. But it sounds like meperidine still perhaps has a place in very specific contexts and can help people when used correctly and safely. So Hannah, any final take-home points for us?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting medication. So meperidine is a mixed mu and kappa opioid, which has a disproportionate effect on stopping the shivers. And that may be because it affects kappa more than other opioids, and because uh, because that kappa agonism causes decreased muscle reactivity or interferes somehow in temperature sensing that's mediated by kappa opioid receptors. In certain clinical scenarios, like amphotericin B-mediated shivering or post-anesthetic shivering, that can be beneficial to help people stop non-physiologic or non-physiologically beneficial rigoring.
2: Great. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Curious Clinicians. Thanks as always for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We continue to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we have been curious clinicians.